listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more information and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Or if you're in the area, come visit us in person. We're definitely hitting on kind of the key events of salvation history, and a lot of times this feels like we're drinking from a fire hose, but there is actually great value in doing this from time to time, kind of zooming out, taking a 10,000-foot view of all of Scripture, uh, because what that does is it allows us to understand when we zoom in what's, what's going on there, right? You think about a novel, for example. If you were to crack open a novel and just start reading at page 221, you're not going to have like a good idea of what's happened before, what's coming after, who are these characters, what's going on, right? Whereas if you've read it from Genesis to Revelation, you've read the whole book, you're going to be able to understand and situate the characters, the plot line, all this stuff, right? So uh, we zoom out in order to, to zoom in. That's kind of the purpose. And so far, we've covered a whole, whole lot of different things. We started out with creation and fall. We had Adam and Eve in the, in the Garden of Eden. Life was perfect. And then the serpent came and he tempted them and the world broke. But already back in Genesis 3.15, God made this promise that the seed of Eve was going to crush the head of the serpent. So already right at the beginning, God is, is, is planning how he's going to fix this, this sin problem. And then we talked about the flood and Noah and, and the ark and God's salvation and kind of starting over. A whole second creation really is what happened there then God called Abraham. He built a nation. There was Isaac and Jacob and the patriarchs. And then there was the Exodus. And God brought deliverance through Moses, and he gave the people the Ten Commandments. And then after that, there was the wilderness wanderings, and they spent 40 years wandering out through the wilderness. And then, of course, there was the conquest where after Moses and the Israelites, Joshua came. And Joshua was the guy who was going to lead them across the Jordan River into the land of Canaan, finally. And then there was this period of the Judges. Judges is like one of the most exciting periods of, uh, of the Old Testament. You get guys like Samson and Deborah and all these really exciting stories that uh, they need to make more movies out of, in my opinion. Um, that these judges happen, and ultimately, uh, the, the Israelites say, well, we don't want, just want a judge, we want a king. God is not good enough for us, so we need an earthly king like all the nations around us. So God gives them these kings. Ultimately, David and Solomon, these guys are kind of the, the golden age of, of Israel when their territory is expanded to the, to the largest boundaries that it ever is. So they're the, the, the peak, the standard that all the other kings, all of Israel and all their history is measured back against but then the kingdom splits, right? We get the kingdom of the north, of Israel and the south, Judah. They sin. There's all this idolatry. God sends prophets. What do they do? Do they repent? No, they persist in their hard-hearted idolatry, right? And so what happens is God ultimately punishes them. He sends his people into exile. And as he's doing this, even as the judgment is falling, in some of these passages from the prophets, you can, you can just about hear God's heart breaking for his people. It gives him no joy to do this. And the northern kingdom goes off into Syria, southern kingdom to Babylon. That was where we ended up last week. And so that brings us to, to chapter 18 today. And today we're going to zoom in on, on one character in particular, a guy by the name of Daniel. Daniel is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. 
Uh, he was part of an elite group of Israelites deported to Babylon for like this advanced leadership training course in uh, kind of how to be a Babylonian leader to serve in the king's administration. And here's how the text describes them. It says, they were young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning. Now, we don't know exactly what Daniel and his friends looked like, but with the help of AI, we've been able to recreate kind of an approximation, and here's, what, here's about what it, what it comes to. So here's a picture of, of what Daniel and... Young, handsome guys without blemish or defect, skilled in all kinds of learning. Does that sound... I don't know. Maybe, like, I think the algorithm, they're still working out the bugs, probably. But here's the real reason I want to talk about Daniel today. Daniel teaches us how to live in exile. Daniel lived in a foreign land surrounded by false gods, and he felt the pressure to conform each and every day. Daniel and his friends found themselves in unfamiliar, godless territory. Right? They were in Babylon. There's no temple to worship at anymore. There's no regular Jewish customs. Their neighbors were no longer believers. The good old days in Israel were long gone. I imagine this must have come as quite a shock to them. So the question they had to answer was, how do we live as believers in exile? How do we live as believers in exile? And as I was reflecting on Daniel's situation and kind of contemplating his context, I thought, you know, isn't that the same question we have to answer today as well? How do we as a church live in exile? I think the truth is, the more I reflect on it, there are a lot of parallels between Daniel's story and our own. Our situation in the 21st century is very similar in many ways. Our culture has been described as post-Christian. Anybody heard this term before, post-Christian? It doesn't mean that Christianity has passed its prime. What it means is that no longer can we assume that our neighbors have the same Judeo-Christian values that, that we do. And that we could, have, we could make that assumption like 20, 30, 40 years ago. So this is kind of the, the world, the situation that we find ourselves in. doesn't mean that Christianity is, is no longer relevant or anything like that. But the religious landscape of our world bears very little resemblance to the one many of us grew up in. The church is no longer the center of culture. It's no longer the center of privilege and power like it once was. Believe it or not, there are actually pros to this. You can talk about that later if you'd like. But pluralism, secularism, and postmodernism are on the rise. And I don't know about you, but that can make us feel very unsettled and unmoored. Right? We feel pressure to conform to the world around us, maybe in ways that we, we wouldn't have in decades past. We are increasingly a church in exile. So given that that is our new position, like it or not, that's the situation we find ourselves in. How do we live as a church in exile? And to that end, Daniel has a lot to teach us. Daniel was faithful, he was fearless, he was friendly, and he was mission-minded. Faithful, fearless, friendly, and mission-minded. That's where we're headed here today. So before we get into this, though, let's, uh, let's turn to the Lord in a, in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, um, I pray that you would meet us here this morning. 
Um, we confess that we are in many ways like Daniel, that the world we look around at and see, it, it unsettles us. and It's not as quote-unquote Christian as maybe it was years back. God, I, I pray that that would open up doors in our hearts and in our lives for ministry opportunities we might not otherwise have. I pray that you would help us to see, God, that this doesn't mean that you are any less at work or active now than, than you have been in the past. So speak to us now through your word, God. Encourage us. Teach us how we should live. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Faithful, fearless, friendly, mission-minded. That's where we're headed. So faithful. If there was one word we could use to describe Daniel, it would probably be, be that. I, I would say faithful. If Daniel had a tombstone, that's what would have been maybe etched into it. Here lies Daniel. He was faithful to the Lord. It's interesting, when, when we look at so many of the other characters in the Bible, it's kind of clear to see where their sinner and saint sides are. It, we can see where uh, the good things they have done and the bad things they have done. But with Daniel, it's like, man, this guy was just like kind of a flawless example of integrity. That's not to say he was perfect uh, by any means, but it is to say that Daniel stood strong. He remained faithful to his convictions in the face of seemingly insurmountable odds. And Daniel was a teenager. Did you know that? That, I mean, that, that, that just totally blew my mind a little bit. Daniel was a teenager. He was likely 15 or 16 years old when he was hauled off into exile. You remember 15 or 16 years old? Anybody here 15 or 16 years old? I don't think so. Not yet. You're getting there. I, I remember being 15 or 16, and do you remember like how hard it was just to get through your day? without caring too much about what people thought of how you looked and, and what you were, you were wearing. With me, it was the, the khaki cargo pants, with like the big pockets on the side, because I had all sorts of cargo to carry around or something. Or thinking about like, what, what, people, what do people think of my haircut? With me, it was a bowl cut, so I had a lot to be concerned with there. Um, but imagine like the pressure of an entire empire pushing up back against you. When the king took Daniel and his friends in, they refused to eat the royal food and drink the wine that he commanded. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were commanded to bow down and worship a false god, what did they do? They refused. They stood strong in their faith, even when the punishment for that was death. When Daniel was commanded to pray to the king under threat of death, he continued to pray to Yahweh. And when King Belshazzar asked Daniel what the writing was on the wall because nobody else could figure out this, this saying that you have been weighed in the scales and found wanting, man, can you imagine saying that to a king or to a president? And, and Babylon was much bigger than ancient Israel. At this time, it was probably the uh, world empire at the time, just a massive amount of a power and prestige. And here he's saying to the king, you've been, found in this, you've been weighed in the scales and found wanting. Why? Because he was faithful to his call as a prophet, to speak God's word, even when that word was a difficult one. In the midst of an unholy culture, Daniel and his companions, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they lived holy lives. They were set apart. They were faithful to Yahweh. Here's what Pastor Adam T. Barr says about this. He says, they humbly refused to cave on their convictions, choosing to follow God's ways rather than adopting the practices of the Babylonians. So that's a good summary of Daniel and his companions 
First off, how do we live in exile? Well, we're, we're called to be faithful. Number two, fearless. Daniel and his companions were also fearless. The, the decisions they made had really serious consequences. I don't know if you, you felt this as you were reading through this chapter this week, but the stakes are incredibly high throughout. Even when their lives are in jeopardy, though, they face these consequences head on. King Nebuchadnezzar threatened gruesome death if none of the wise men could tell him the meaning of his dream. And they didn't just want him to, he didn't just ask them to tell him the meaning of the dream. He told them, he asked them to tell him what it was he actually dreamed. <laughs> Don't just tell me what my dream meant. First off, tell me what I dreamed, which is like an impossible thing from a human perspective. Here's what he said. He said, the king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your house turned into piles of rubble. Whoa, right? Stakes are high. Understandably, this created a whole pandemic, a whole situation of fear. But interestingly enough, Daniel was not affected by this fearful pandemic around him. Here's what he says. Here's what happened. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. Rather, giving in, rather than giving in to the fear of the culture around them, he responds with wisdom and tact. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to the king's idol, he threw them into the fiery furnace with the intention of killing them. Now, we know this in hindsight that God was planning to rescue them, but they didn't know that at the time, did they? Fearless. When Daniel continued to pray to God rather than to the king, when the king issued this edict that everyone has to, 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 to pray to him alone, what did Daniel do? He opened up the windows, didn't he? He opened up the windows toward Jerusalem and, and he prayed Three times a day. There's not much room for, for shame there. Is there? Here, here's what, what, what happened. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. He didn't change a thing. And that little detail about him opening the windows toward Jerusalem, that, I think that says everything that we need to know about Daniel's character. He didn't feel the need to hide the fact that he worshipped Yahweh. He was okay being public about it. Open wide the shutters and let the whole world know. In the face of death, Daniel was utterly fearless. And that begs the question, what would I have done in that situation? Had I been faced with the threat of death, being thrown into a lion's den had I not prayed to the king, how would I have responded? In faith, like Daniel? Or would it be the fear in my heart that pulled me in a different direction? So how do we live in exile? Well, how did Daniel live? He was faithful. He was fearless. The thing about Daniel, though, is that he was also friendly. Now, this one might seem a little bit strange, because I don't know about you, but if I were hauled away from Osakis and 
planted in some, some new country and forced to serve the king there, there are a lot of words you could use to describe my temperament. Friendly might not be at the top of that list, right? Maybe angry, maybe frustrated, maybe sad, maybe depressed or something, but friendly. Daniel's response here is, is really interesting. It would be understandable if he was bitter and his attitude was something like, well, things were so much better back in the good old days of Israel. But we don't get that sense from Daniel at all, do we? He made friends with the kings. He developed relationships and, and he didn't get angry at the godless culture around him. He didn't treat the Babylonians or later the Persians with disdain. Instead, he was humble and he spoke the truth in love. 1 Peter 3.15, it says this. Why don't you read it with me? 1 Peter 3.15, please read with me. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. See, Daniel had both of those parts down, didn't he? He was ready to give an answer. He was ready to stand strong and firm in his faith. He opened the windows wide, right? Like, no shame here. But with gentleness and respect. You know, it's easy to treat non-Christians in our non-Christian culture with disdain. I find myself drifting in that direction at, at times. It's easy to belittle our culture and to, to look down on the big bad world. That's kind of our default reaction, but you know what's harder? To love? Man. It's harder to actually enter into people's messy lives. It's easier to withdraw than to engage, but that's not actually what God calls us to do. Listen to the prophet Jeremiah's instructions to the exiles here. This is, in my mind, this is kind of astounding. Jeremiah 29, 4-7, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. That's interesting, isn't it? Seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon. Right? This is non-Christian city. Because if it, if it thrives, if it prospers, you too will prosper. In other words, Christians should actively work toward the common good and flourishing of our communities because God loves people and cultures in all of their diversity, in all of their creativity, and we should too. In his book, Joining Jesus on Mission, author Greg Finke, he makes the case for enjoying people. Now, a lot of times we'll talk about loving people and He's pro-loving people, like 
love people. This is, this is good. This is important. But he also recognizes that, you know, it's easy to love in theory. Now, you ask anybody, do you love your neighbor? Is there anybody who's like anti-neighbor? I don't think that's an actual like stance, right? Of course we love our neighbor. We, all, we love you, love your neighbor. But do you know your neighbor? Do you know the person that you say that you love? Do you know their middle name, their last name? Do you know the shows they watch, the books they read? Do you understand what's important to them? Do you know what their hopes and their dreams are? How many of your neighbors do you think you'd be able to to answer those, those questions about? What matters to them? In the midst of exile, Daniel was faithless. Huh. <laughs> Let's back that up. Faithful, fearless, friendly, and lastly, because I couldn't think of another word that started with F, Daniel was mission minded. Daniel was mission minded. When Daniel and his friends were brought to Babylon, the king, he basically enrolled them in an orientation to Babylon 101 course. Here's, here's what happened. This is Daniel chapter 1, verse 4. It says, he was to teach them, as Daniel and his friends, the language and literature of the Babylonians. Daniel learned the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Now, Daniel, as we know, he was, he was fearless, right? He could have stood up and said, no, that, that's too pagan for me. But he didn't get up in arms about having to learn about the culture and values of a non-Christian nation. Instead, he became a part of it, in the world, not of the world. And get this, God was the one behind this whole effort in the first place. The reason Daniel learned the language and literature of the Babylons was because God wanted him to. Listen to this, Daniel 1.17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. To these four men, who gave them the knowledge and understanding? God. Before he engaged the culture, Daniel had to spend some time becoming a student of the culture around him. There's another interesting detail here in Daniel 1.7 says the, the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. What's going on here? What's the deal with the name change? Well, they're becoming a part of Babylonian culture, and so they're given Babylonian names. In fact, many of these, these names have to do with Babylonian religious deities. So in Babylonian religion, Bel or Marduk was the chief god of their pantheon. So Daniel's name change reflects his assimilation to a Babylonian culture. Now, sometimes as Christians, you feel this, I feel this tension all the time. Sometimes as Christians, it's more comfortable to create our own culture with our own movies and our own music and our own books and our own t-shirts to prove that we are kind of separate from the world, and there's some good Christian t-shirts out there. Check this out. Enjoy Jesus Christ and thou shalt never thirst. Here's one. May the Lord be with you. Need an ark? 
I know a guy. By the way, my birthday is coming up in a couple weeks, so if you're still shopping, I encourage you to check these out. But what is Daniel's relationship to the culture around him? Daniel was a missionary confronted with the pressures of a pagan culture. He didn't withdraw or retreat or put up walls, which would be the natural thing to do. Without compromising his faith, he and his friends got to know their neighbors, to to rub shoulders with them, and to understand the culture so that they could more effectively witness to them. And the results are, are amazing here. When Daniel interpreted the king's dream, the king responded by praising the Lord. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire unscathed, the king responded by worshiping Yahweh and making a decree that no one in his whole empire could say anything bad about Yahweh. And when Daniel was rescued from the lion's den, listen to what King Darius says. You would swear this is straight out of the Psalms, but no, this is in fact from a pagan king's mouth. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language and all the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. This Billy Graham? Darius. God used Daniel's witness to bring powerful people to faith. As a church living in exile, surrounded by the pressures of a a post-Christian secular world like Daniel, we are called to be faithful, fearless, friendly, and mission-minded. And that's a tall order, right? If you're anything like me, you look at that list, and some of those come more natural than others, and you recognize how far short we fall as human beings. But the really good news about our situation is this. God sent His one and only Son to rescue us from exile. Right? We're saved not by being faithful, fearless, friendly, or mission-minded. We're saved by faith in Christ alone, who pays the penalty for our sins with His holy and precious blood, making a way for us to have peace with the Father. This stuff comes as a result of that. See, Jesus is the faithful one who saw his mission through all the way to the cross. He is the fearless one who faced the crowds of mockers, the thorns, the nails, and stared down Satan in the wilderness. He is the friendly one, a true friend of sinners, and he is is mission-minded. He left heaven behind to come to earth on this rescue mission for you, because He loved you. That is the story of Daniel, that is the story of Jesus, and really that is the story of the whole Bible. So as we wrap up today, what is the Bible? What is it all about? This is one of the questions we've been asking, and when someone asks you this question, what is the plot line of Scripture, what is a summary of the Bible in three distinct points, we want to be able to give them a clear, concise answer, and here it is. So I invite you to say this with me. What is the Bible 
all about? Well, the Bible is the story of God's great love for us, how far we have gone from that love, and how far God was willing to go to get us back. Let's pray. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's Word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's pastor K-J-O-L-H-A-U-G at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen.